I'm your host, Rena Friedman Watts, and this is the Better Call Daddy Show. Hey, this is Big Daddy, Wayne Friedman. That's my grandpa. Grandpa, you ready for more daddy drama? My dad is my number one hero and number one fan. And I'm a pretty cool dude. All right, season four, baby, here we go. More stories you're not going to believe. And maybe you will after you listen. Five stars. Five and a half stars, two thumbs up. You are a pretty cool dude. Love you, mommy. Don't stand on the table and damn the public. You'll get some words of wisdom to live by. Here we go again. Better call daddy. You know what your problem is? You like me. Yeah, I do. Each week, I interview a guest, share the stories with my dad, and then he weighs in at the end of every episode with his wisdom and wit. Hey, Grandpa. Everyone from influential players to inspirational fathers, and of course, controversial people. Grandpa, my mommy's calling. Creating that legacy one call at a time. And welcome to the Better Call Daddy Show. Stay tuned. Where's the music? Better call daddy because he knows you best. He's bringing the test. He sees possibilities. Better call daddy, he'll be by your side. Better call daddy, you're the apple of his eye. He sees possibilities. Oh, won't you Growing up ain't easy, and the decisions that we make, we have to live with our whole lives. Hopefully, we can learn from them and look at things positively. Today, we are speaking with the host of Ignorance Was Bliss. Kate Walinga, welcome to the Better Call Daddy Show. So are you ready to have some fun? I feel like I totally know you, the amount of podcasts that I've listened to that you've been on, and then the amount of hours that we have now spoken. I mean, you know, yeah, we're besties. It's good. So I hope you take this in the right way. Let's start with spelling your first and last name. Kate is pretty straightforward, right? K-A-T-E. Last name is Wallinga, W-A-L-L-I-N-G-A. And Kate, what brings you here today? I don't know. I just came down and sat at my computer and you were magically inside the screen. It was a delight. Oh my gosh. So I heard that that is what you used to ask people when they came to speak with you. So I wanted to try that and see what answer I got. Yeah, you got wise ass. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Another thing that you said that I like starred and thought was so funny is that people are closer to murder than you realize. Can we talk about that? I would argue it's more that you are closer to your likely murderer than you realize that we, we all get scared of strangers. We all get afraid of the dark or, you know, especially women in our society are trained to like walk down the sidewalk with our keys like they're sticking through the knuckles, you know, like Wolverine or whatever. And the reality is the people, it murders a big deal, right? It's not, it's not easy to do. It's not something you do accidentally or often spur of the moment, except for gun owners, which is why I'm not a fan of guns myself, because then you can, with just a couple of pounds of pressure, accidentally do it. But in general, it's a big deal and it's hard to do. And so you really got to be feeling very upset. You got to be really into it. And who do you get upset at? You get upset at the people you're closest to, Mm. you know? So the people you live with, your neighbors or family, that kind of thing. Those are the, the most likely places where violence kicks off. And then sometimes it keeps kicking. Yeah. Another thing you talked about too is like you have sat across from murderers. You've sat across from people who are suicidal. What 
can you say? What do you say to get them to answer the questions that you need to know? I'm real honest with them right up front about there's two different jobs entirely. So the, the forensic psychology is when you're someone, in my case, it was the state, but sometimes it's the prosecution or the defense. Someone says to you, here's a certain amount of money, go find the answer to this question. And the question is, sometimes is this person competent to stand trial? Sometimes it's what's their diagnosis? Sometimes it's where can we best house them? Can they handle a regular jail? Can the other prisoners handle them? You know, that kind of thing. And so then you just very upfront with them about, look, this is what I gotta do. This is, this is like, I'll show you the paperwork. This is, these are the questions I need to have answered. No, I won't explain to you how I'm going to reach the answer. But once I have the answers, I'll come back to you and show you my report. You know, I also heard you say that one time someone wanted the report and that is not allowed. How come? It depends on what you mean. They always get their report, like the, the final report, but you don't get the testing materials. You don't get the mid-range stuff, like the rough draft, you could call it. I, like, I choose to. You don't have to, and but I always chose to go back to the client, whether it's an inmate or whether it's outpatient, with here's my final written report because I want them to read it and I want them to see themselves. I want it to make sense. I want I want you to read it and it shouldn't be full of jargon. It should make sense. Nobody like outside of TV, nobody wants the big exciting courtroom scene where the the defendant stands up and screams at you like I never said that or that's not what happened or whatever. You want to get that done, you know, the screaming and the I never said that. You want to deal with that in advance. And so by and large, I, I certainly always showed people the report if they if they were willing to. It depended on the person whether I was allowed to hand it to them to keep. Mm. Crisis work, like are you suicidal, homicidal, experiencing, you know, a schizophrenic or bipolar break, that kind of thing, that happens in the moment. And there's not really a report in the same way, but you're in somebody's life in like the most vulnerable time for them. And you need to just go straight for what are we doing here? You know, what's going on? Like, can you go home safely? Can we come up with a plan for that? Do you need a hospital? And there's times where you're right that I, I start with asking everybody like, what brings you here today? And there's times where they start telling me about their second grade teacher. And I'll be like, George, you're 62 years old. I'm not a therapist. Now is not the time. I mean, literally today, what's happening right now, you know? And, and, and I was always just very matter of fact, like, this is what's going on. This is why you had to wait so long to see me. This is what we're going to do right now. And this, and then after we talk, I would be saying, okay, here's the next steps because I think humans function best when they have information. Was there anyone who didn't know why they were there? Sure. There were people that didn't literally were, you know, delirious, disoriented, didn't know where they were. One of the reasons, so, so if, if, you or anyone was to go to the ER right now because you're feeling suicidal, homicidal, or having, you know, hallucinations or delusions that are not typical, that you won't actually sit down with a mental health professional for several hours. And the reason for that is that you have to ha you have to be medically cleared first. So you go through like like you're any other ER patient. 
and they're going to draw blood work. Part of that is because I can't talk to you if you're not sober. So they're going to do blood work and take a urine sample to find out what's your blood alcohol level and what other drugs are you on. So I've had people who are so intoxicated they didn't know. And in which case you got to put them to the end of the line and see the next person. But one of the reasons you need to be medically cleared is as a, for instance, elders, especially women, uh, although not always, basically their whole lives pretty stable and suddenly they're delirious can't identify you know themselves or who they're with or what's going on or they get super paranoid their language gets strange it's called word salad they sort of inject words together that don't fit often that's the sign of a uti they don't necessarily even feel it there's it may be asymptomatic for them but they run blood work at the er and realize oh your white blood cell count is really high or it shows up in your urine test that's a very different treatment plan you know, that's a course of antibiotics. And usually within hours of getting on an IV antibiotics, they're better again. Interesting. Yeah. I heard you mention like when you were 24, somebody tried to yank your ID badge like during oh, a she, test. She was fun. Yeah. <laughs> she she remains one of the scariest patient encounters. And, 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 and she was a patient in a psychiatric hospital where I was working. And, you know, normally I kind of play a little vague with the genders and everything, but this was a woman and and that's notable because she was in for stalking one of her professors a female professor and so it was like a platonic type thing it wasn't a romantic they weren't in a relationship but lots of us who have worked in higher education know some some students get clingier than others and this one went over the top i mean the professor left her job and moved to the other side of the state and then the patient followed her there and was like taking videos of herself at the professor's house to, to prove that she was there and was like there were details and at the same time this happens a lot where when somebody gets over fixated on something they don't just pick one bucket of crazy to sample from they do a bunch and so she also was it's now it's now called factitious disorder but it was called munchausen syndrome at the time it, it's essentially faking but not for financial gain it's, it's faking illness so a lot of us have heard of munchausen syndrome by proxy which is now facts factitious disorder instigated in another right and munchausen system is in, in yourself and so it's faking illness but not for like an insurance scam or a gofundme campaign or something it's just but they don't really know it's like for for attention or validation or drama or whatever and she she was doing that and she took photos and videos of some of the medical equipment that she had theoretically had placed but if you brought it to a doctor and said what am i looking at here they were like oh yeah that's installed literally upside down it's clearly not an operational piece of medical equipment and that kind of thing so so there was this whole medical side of things plus the obsession with the teacher and so on and so I was asked to come and come up with a, a diagnosis and back it up for court. And we were doing testing and, and I did by testing, there's, there's like a structured interview that you go through to get biographical information, demographics, that kind of thing. And then you also do like a raw shock, you know, the inkblot test, which I loved. They're so fun. And you do the MMPI, Minnesota Multiphasic 
personality inventory. It's 567 questions, yes, no questions. And there's a lot of overlap in questions and that kind of thing to kind of catch if you're if you're lying and, and, it, and it measures your personality out and it sort of graphs it out in certain ways. A couple of other personality type tests, sometimes as simple as finish a sentence or draw a tree and sometimes more complicated. And so I had gone through this whole battery of tests because we had to prove that she was smart. We had to prove that she knew right from wrong. We had to prove what we thought her diagnosis was. And so I had already spent several hours with her on other days and I came in. This was when, like I, I always kind of thought when I first started working that I was being paranoid because I practiced under my maiden name. I got married when I was 23, but I, my diplomas were all printed it in my, my maiden name and I never associated the two. She started asking questions about what were my thoughts about the diagnosis or whatever. And you don't talk to somebody about diagnostic impression midway through, you know, mm -hmm. and that's what I said. I'm like, look, let me just finish gathering the information. And then when I got everything together, I will sit and I will go through line by line with you if you want. But I can't do that in the middle, partly because she was clearly smart enough that she was trying to nudge the results. And she didn't seem to realize that that was showing up. Even just by asking me, I told her like, look, I can't, I'm not allowed to. I, I ethically, I cannot hand you the raw shock. I cannot hand you the scoring systems. Like that's part of the job is that that's why I'm trained to use it. You are not, you know, it's, it's like, you can't have a, a 13 year old come up to you and say, I want to drive the car and you just toss them the keys. There's got to be training first. Right. And they have to be appropriately licensed and that kind of deal. And so I was like, look, I, I just can't like, and I, and I didn't even, it's not like I had a big stack of stuff in front of me. Like I, we did the testing in a little empty room. Like, so it wasn't like I could pull open a desk drawer and be like, here you go. And that's on purpose for exactly this. So that they don't think that like this stack of papers over here is all about them. Nah. But so she started, I, I, I want, I want you to go get the scoring. I want to see where I'm at right now, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, that is not the way it works. And you're not the one driving this train right now. And she reaches out over the desk and she grabbed, I had a, my, my ID badge was on a lanyard and she yanks it. And now luckily they, they have a pop, you know, a little thing on the back that, that pops it open exactly for situations like this. Cause she like rips it off and she's like, now I have your name. Now I'll be able to find where you live, blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, okay, you just, you just keep giving me more and more diagnostic information. But I was really glad that she didn't get, my married name and I've never owned property under my my maiden name or anything like that so she was not able to show up on my doorstep yeah that's scary uh, yeah you also talked about how you were kind of questioning yourself like did I do something wrong does this happen like you needed somebody to talk to you after that right like oh I mean well always like that's why you have co-workers and it's why you have a supervisor you know and both to report like hey she got she got wound up she went over the edge here you need to know this but also how could i have done it differently and sometimes the answer is there's absolutely nothing within the bounds of the job you know other than refusing to test at all there's nothing i could have done were there other times that you've been scared like that or scared at all i mean i'm sure it's a different sort of fear i never felt personally threatened I certainly had people who didn't like, like the diagnosis that I came up with. I never took that especially personally because it was like, look, you can, you can get a second opinion. Please do. No. I mean, people often ask if I, if I felt scared to work in the prison because it's a men's prison. I was 20. 
25, 26, 27 in there when I start, you know, mid 20s. And one of the very few females wandering and around. And a mom. You know, I guess I had, I had two kids by then. And so it was intimidating the first time, you know, when you, the first time you walk through the door, you're not allowed to have your cell phone. They have those like mail slots. And so you stick your cell phone and you stick your car keys in there and you're walking in. I mean, this was in the, the early 2000s. So we weren't quite as tied to our phones. But still, there's this like this feeling of what do I do? And they on that lanyard on, in the prison, you've got your ID badge and you've got like a panic button. I never came close to using it. The inmates are very protective, especially of female staff, because they know that they'll get in more trouble. You know, things are considered assault. For instance, spitting. If I were to spit on somebody on the sidewalk right now, it'd be gross. It'd be unpleasant. But they wouldn't press charges. And even if they tried to in all likelihood, it would wash out pretty quick. But there's like a secondary jail within every prison. Inmates are held to tighter standards. And so if an inmate spits on another inmate, that's another three to five years on their sentence often because it's assault. Yeah, those are some harsh rules. And, you know, and so so they were very protective of most staff. You, you know, you don't you don't touch staff, but especially women. And especially me, because I wasn't a cop, you know, I, I fit more, I think in their world map, I fit more with the like medical staff, which is close enough, you know, sort of medical staff and clergy and mental health were all sort of, they got that we were there to do something other than keep them in a box. And so they would, I had definite times where, where inmates would pull me to the side and be like, don't walk across the yard after lunch today. Something's going down. And I never asked questions. That was not part of my responsibility. I didn't want to get anybody in trouble if nothing ended up going down. You know, if I had details, of course, I would share them. But if it was just a case of, look, two guys are going to punch each other, like, I don't know. I'm not going to get involved in that. I would just not cross the yard after lunch that day. Did you ever witness any of that? Oh, yeah. All the time. I, to the point where they would occasionally break up a fight and apologize to me, and then I'd walk by, and then they'd start again, and I'd be like, what is happening? Like, I'm not your mother. I'm not going to stand here and... Referee. Right? For real. Wow. Interesting. How have assessments changed from the time that you started until now? A lot more is digital. Mm, yeah, that makes sense. And there's a, there's a lot of... So like the MMPI, the one with the 567 questions, it has a certain number of scales and subscales that come back as, as its findings. When I finished, and, and part of my dissertation was actually about ways to use the same questions, but to maybe tease out other diagnostic features and to update it as the diagnostic manual, the DSM, the Diagnostical Institute statistical manual is how we officially make di assessments and diagnoses and th that changes every with every subsequent edition and so it's on the edition five now use that way there's less of a reliance on intelligence tests because we've realized that iq is bullshit you know iq is measuring it's old white me men measuring school knowledge of other middle-aged white men that's where it came from it's not at all sensitive to social learning emotions it's not sensitive to culture and it's not geared toward things that we teach girls in schools so it's more and more archaic so there there's work on developing other tests but ultimately the answer is we don't need as many tests unless you're going through like court or to get accommodations for school you really don't need tests for assessment like you, you need more humanity you need more sitting down and understanding what is this like what symptoms are more or less 
disturbing to you. When I was kind of finishing school, there was still this very intense pushback toward the concept of self-diagnosis, almost to the point where if client or patient had self-diagnosed, that that was almost like then the last thing they would consider because there was this thought that like somehow I know better than you do. My sense is we're getting better about that. We're getting like, for instance, there's a lot of people now who are self-diagnosing with autism and other neurodevelopmental disorders. ADHD. Well, I deliberately didn't say that because oh. I, I, I sit them in different classes. So with autism, go ahead and, and self-diagnose all day long. That's fine. It doesn't matter. Autism isn't a sickness or anything wrong with you. It's, it's a way of viewing the world and a way of functioning with other people. And it's okay to, to, to use that as shorthand when you say to somebody, this is how I function. So they say, okay. Got it. ADHD, if your plan is to describe yourself that way and say, yeah, I, I have trouble with making plans, following them through, and then assessing how well they are, which is fundamentally what executive functioning is and ADHD is, that's fine. Go ahead and self-diagnose there. But if you're looking for treatment, especially medication, okay, now you need somebody who understands what normal is to be able to say, do your symptoms rise to the level of needing? medication. That makes but, sense. You know, personality, they call them disorders. I just think they're just like some of them are disordered. I would argue like narcissism, for instance, that's pretty disordered. That's pretty unsafe. But I don't like that borderline personality disorder has such a bad rap because it's just a way of viewing the world. It's a way of living with other humans. If we stopped looking at them as high maintenance or obnoxious and we started realizing that they're just charismatic, intensely drawn toward interpersonal interaction, and they have really thin, often thin defenses against a feeling of insult or a feeling of people disliking them. Like it physically hurts them almost. So the thing about borderline, they tend to be kind of chaotic people to be around. Think about that in the same way that, you know, the main treatment for ADHD, even though ADHD means a lot of often hyperactivity or at least shifting of focus a lot and moving around a lot. And you and it's because your your brain is spinning faster than your body can keep up with. And so you just kind of can't, everything's out of whack a little bit. And so it seems like a weird thing that we treat ADHD with stimulants, but that's what it is. I mean, that's what Adderall and Ritalin are. They're speed. We're giving your kids speed out there. That's, that's meth. If somebody takes meth and they don't really have any reaction from it, probably got ADHD is the answer because, you know, people on ADHD, coffee calms them down, Adderall, Ritalin, et cetera, it calms them down because it doesn't actually calm them down. What it does is rises the, the level of activation of their body up. Mm. So now suddenly their physical activity and their brain activity are at a level and now they can function. With borderline, there's just a lot of noise going on in their head all the time. It's, you know, it's not anxiety exactly. It's just a lot of chaos. It's, it's, it's this feeling of not being in control and this difficulty with managing, like calmness starts to feel weird because they're, people who have borderline are often raised in chaos. You know, they often come from households. Either It's either genetic or it's you're predisposed to it through your household. And I don't believe in nature versus nurture. It's, it's not a thing. So how come? Because we are raised 
in an environment. You're born with a certain amount of nature and then you're raised in a certain nature and who really cares? Like fundamentally, it's what are you going to do with it? And mm. very, very few things are totally genetic and very, very few things are totally environmental. They're all mixed up and together. And so let's look at how they interact rather than trying to pretend that people are either born or made. But the thing about people with borderline is that they often are raised by parents who have borderline, which means they are raised in a chaotic environment. So is it genetic or is it environmental? We don't know. It doesn't matter. The point is that they live with this sort of chaos and it's it's like a social anxiety, sort of sometimes. Other times it's anger, you know, sort of these feelings of rage or frustration or feeling disrespected. There's lots of lots of things that get mixed up in there. They feel like they're the only ones a lot of times because they look around and everybody else is sitting down and feeling pretty chill and everybody else is having relationships that don't end up in screaming fights or they're having kids and there's no you know custody issues or whatever like how come everybody else has it so easy and it's so hard for me and eventually they start doing things I don't believe deliberately but they start doing things to create chaos outside. And now pretty soon you get everybody else around you riled up and revved up and flailing and upset. And now that's the equivalent of the body and the brain for ADHD. Now it's the society in me. We're all equally messed up. Cool. I'm not crazy anymore. Interesting. So like it makes total sense. And they're charismatic yeah. because they have to be able to read other people to know which buttons to push and, and how to push them and that kind of thing. Once they reach a point where they can say, yes, I meet the criteria for this diagnosis. This is a thing I have. I struggle with it. I'd like to have a life with less conflict. There are some really great treatments, really great therapies for, for borderline, for instance, but you can't force it on somebody. It's not a medication. It's engaging in therapy. And that's really hard work. Interesting. Yeah. I also heard you say in, in an episode that after going through, you know, a traumatic brain injury that you came out of that and you're like, we need therapy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's one of the first sentences I said to my husband and we had, I mean, early on in our marriage, I mean, we got married, we were babies having babies, you know, we didn't know what we were doing. And so we were in therapy for a little while then, and then not for a while we were doing okay. And I effectively died in childbirth with our third in 2010. I spent a week and a half in a coma and life support and all that. And when I came out, everything had changed for me. I had complete amnesia initially and I had complete aphasia initially, which is no words. I couldn't understand what people were saying to me and I couldn't find words. Obviously the words thing got mostly better, although it's still hard for me. Like I still do a lot of pausing and buffering to find the word I'm looking for. And I still have amnesia for about the year leading up to the birth, but only that year. So basically 2009 doesn't exist for me. I've seen pictures, it looks lovely, but I wasn't there. Once I started to, you know, like I recognized my husband when he came in the first day that I woke up, but I couldn't find words and I couldn't find his name and I couldn't find my own name for, for several days. And once I could, I remember saying to him, like, while I'm still in the ICU, I'm still on life support, basically and saying to him, we, we need therapy. This is way too big. There's everything has just changed. I don't even know what, but everything. And I can't rely solely on him. He can't lean on me kind of at all right now because I'm kind of a mess. And so that was one of the first things we started doing once I was finally home. I was in the hospital for six weeks. Wow. Yeah. I heard you say too that you had like an opening the size of a grapefruit. Oh God. <laughs> yeah. So what, what happened is that someone in the delivery room had strep throat and that got into my bloodstream through the process of childbirth. 
you know, I didn't even have like an episiotomy. I didn't even need a stitch. It just, it was a, it was vaginal birth and it was just a little tiny tear, but that's enough for strep to get in, you know? And within about 12 hours, I, I, I was like, something's wrong. Something's wrong. I feel intense abdominal pain and something's wrong. And now they had in the delivery room, one nurse said that she had seen my son, my 13 year old, take one labored breath. And so that's an automatic three days in the NICU. And I was like, all right, like in, in the moment, I'm not going to fight it. Maybe I'll fight it the next day or whatever. But then, you know, the NICU is not a terrible thing. They're, they're great nurses up there and you, they work really hard with you to help breastfeed and that kind of deal. So I was just like, fine. Okay. And it turns out that probably helped save my life because I was just focusing on my own symptoms. And within 12 hours, I'm like, this, something feels wrong. And I started begging to see a doctor and they were like, you're fine. You're fine. You're fine. You just gave birth. Of course, you're sore. Drink more ginger ale. I had one doctor finally come in the day I was being discharged. She tapped on my belly six times and said, maybe I tore a ligament and left. I'm like, what ligaments? <laughs> There's no ligaments. Like what are you talking about? So I got discharged and I couldn't walk to the door, like they had to wheel me in the wheelchair right up to the, the door of the car. The NICU refused to release my son because they were like, you're too sick. And I'm like, yeah, I know. Could you tell them that downstairs? But they were like, we, we need you to get a, you know, effectively a doctor's note that says that you're safe to be home. And so we tried to go home. We lived in a second floor walk up at the time and I couldn't handle the stairs. And again, that saved my life for sure. So we turned around, we went to the ER. By this point, I hadn't slept in three days. This just whole body pain and running a fever and was just, I couldn't stand, I couldn't sit, I couldn't lie down, like everything was miserable. They get me into the, the CT scanner to do an abdominal CT scan. And it's the only time that I've ever had, uh, you know, any sort of radiological thing or lab work or whatever. They're trained to be kind of poker faced and to be like, wait till you hear the results come from the doctor. And I'm still in the CT. I'm still in the machine. And I hear from over my shoulder, I hear the lab tech go, holy shit. And I'm like, that's not the right answer at all. Because it turns out what had happened is my uterus had ruptured. So, you know, gas pain ripped organ, you know, same, totally same. That night they did the first surgery and the plan, I believe, was to just do like a hysterectomy. But when they opened me up, that's when they learned because it had gone three days untreated, I had developed necrotizing fasciitis, which is the flesh eating bacteria you read about in the tabloids. I had that abdominally. And so they airlifted me to Mass General in Boston. And I remember all, like, I remember that night in the ICU. I remember the med flight. It was a lovely March morning. And I remember all of that. And I remember doing like the Grey's Anatomy style landing on the hospital roof. And they're all like doing the hunched over run. Like, apparently that's a real thing. Then it goes black and I don't remember anything. And they ended up doing 13 surgeries over the course of that 10 days. And so when I came out of the coma, I had an 18 inch incision from sternum to pelvis straight down. And then I had a grapefruit size hole all the way through my abdominal wall. I didn't know humans could do that. Oh, my God. Like and I spent this is so months. insane. It was insane. And I spent months thinking like, I'm going to sneeze and my spleen is going to skitter out my side. Like or whatever. The, I don't know. You know, <laughs> so. It was wild. It was, I was on home health care for a year. An organ. Yeah. You know, seriously, it was insane. And I couldn't safely leave because 
I couldn't like I couldn't walk well and and I, you don't want details. It was it was so gross. <laughs> Some of and the how treatments can you take and care of your baby. I I couldn't, and so that's what leads us into. So this is my whole life. This is just my whole life is a soap opera. And so we had to hire and hire a nanny because I had two older kids. My older kids were ten and five, and now I got a, a newborn. And my mother had come out. Probably the, the one of the only nicest things she's ever done, and I really believe it was for the fame and image of it all, not for me personally. But while I was in the hospital, my mother did come out to take care of the kids. The day I came home, she left. So she was clear, she was not there for me, but fine, whatever. She that allowed my husband to keep working. It kept the kids in school. So that's I, you know, credit where due. But so I come home, my husband's still working. He's a he's a college professor. So he's on the academic schedule. I had like 6 weeks left in the year or something like that. And I've got these little kids and what are you going to do? And so we hired a nanny and I never thought I would be in the position of needing a nanny. Like I, I was always pretty independent and we'll make it work. And it, you know, I can handle my own kids. And this was a case of like, I would, I would be mid sentence and start to fall asleep. Like your energy just drains out of you like a sieve. And so we hired her and she honestly did well. Like she was a good nanny. She got how we functioned. She got how we parented. We're, we're big on sort of natural consequences. So we don't do grounding. If you take one of your siblings sweatshirts, you have to give them one of yours, that kind of, you know, something like that. We don't, we try to make it make sense. Why are we doing this? We don't just like whack the kid and move on. Like that was my day. And it didn't teach me a whole lot about how to function in the world. She seemed to get that. She did a fine there and finding a good nanny is tough it was because we'd had another briefly before her who just simply stopped showing up and i was like that's exciting at about a, a little over a year after all of this i guess a year and a half we got a bigger place that wasn't a second floor walk up that helped and and it had an in-law apartment and so so she moved in and so we just traded rent for childcare. and i started to feel better i went back to teaching first and then i decided i was going to go back to doing the crisis work it's slightly less physical in nature than the forensic there's a lot of walking and moving around in long days when you're doing forensic psychology and you can't be in the middle of four hours on the stand and be like can i can i take a nap you, like you can't do that whereas with crisis work you can take a break between patients if you have to so i i was starting to think about that and our nanny came up to me and said i think i want to get pregnant and i was like i'm trying to think of how to ask if you're an idiot without asking if you're an idiot because she she didn't have a partner she knew with us it would happen where she'd get overwhelmed and she'd say hey can you i gotta hand the kids over to you i, I i've had too much and so i'm like what are you gonna do when you're on your own like who's gonna be your backup there oh i'll handle it babies are cute i'm like no they're not that just sucks you in briefly but then they're terrible they're loud and they're 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 hard work and they don't tell you what they need and it's just like you don't want okay like i guess this is what you want to do but i cannot be a part of it because i think what she really wanted was to get pregnant and have the baby and be just part of our family like sort of an an aunt or something you know and and i very much did not want to take responsibility for her luckily right at that time was 2000 11 so the housing market was just starting to bounce back some i guess 2012 i guess is when it when it ultimately happened with the housing market was starting to come back and so we bought a house when we could didn't have an in-law apartment and so it was like look we're good thank you so much for your help good luck and the day we moved is the day that she was like yeah i'm pregnant and i'm like Haha. well <laughs> you know and and she deliberately chose the father to be her ex-boyfriend who was now engaged to someone else 
So I'm like, this is, you're making choices that I, I'm not sure what you think the end point is going to be, but I'm pretty sure it's not going to be how you imagine it to be. She pieced and patched things together for a couple of years. I would see it on, on social media, you know, cute, all the cute pictures, you know, we went to the beach and I got her ears pierced or whatever, you know, whatever. And then when the baby was just over two, I got a call late one Tuesday night. Can she and I come stay with you? She was like a couple hours away from us at the time. She'd been, she's like, I, I, I moved out of my, she'd been living with her mother. She had been with a boyfriend, I guess, and whom she got together with like days after she gave birth. So he knew it wasn't his kid, but they, they kind of lived as a little three person family for a while. She's like, so I broke up with, with that guy because I learned that he's already been convicted of trafficking and child pornography and he just got arrested again. DCF has said they're going to take Danny, the baby, from me if I stay with him. I asked my family for help. They said no. I'm living in a, um, one of those motels that rents by the hour of the month. I shouldn't find this funny, but I do. This, this line just sounds like a line from a country music song. I just lost my job at the mayonnaise factory. Right. Can you imagine what that smells like in the summer? Like, oh, oh my yeah. God. Can we come stay there? Can you take care of the baby so I can check myself into the a psych hospital? And she never quite said suicidal to me, but that was the vibe. And the answer was like, of course, like you help somebody if you can. And so, you know, I went in and sort of shook my husband awake to be like, hey, when you wake up tomorrow morning, there's going to be a baby in the office, just so you know. And he sort of mumbles at me. He's like, why don't we just go to the point where we adopt her right now. And in the moment, I was like, no, it'll be fine. We'll be like, we'll get her on her feet. It'll be fine. And no, it turns out it would not be fine. The next morning, my husband went off to work. My kids went off to school and I'm home alone with this two-year-old who didn't speak and like she could, but she had to, it was very declarative statements only. And if you asked her a question, she would cry or act as though she was going to get hurt. And turns out that was because that's what happened to her is that, you know, if she was asked red or blue and she guessed wrong, they'd hit her. And her, her biologic, her maternal grandmother was in charge of daycare for a while. And she kept a whiteboard on her kitchen wall of how many times a day she had to hit the baby, which I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? Had to hit a baby. You're like, whether or not you believe in spanking, a kid is under two. That's not going to, no. The ex-boyfriend had definitely involved Danny in his trafficking. Oh my God, no. Stuff. So that, that, that is out there somewhere. I mean, so they had, I think I counted it up one, at one point that they had like eight different therapists helping in different ways. Like, cause there was like mom had a therapist, kid had a therapist. There was a family therapist. There was one who just helped mom with work skills and another who helped them found housing. And then there was the DCF therapist and then their supervisor. It was, it was insane. Like my house became just a circus. It was just a revolving door, people coming in and out all the time. And you have to let it happen because you're trying to support them and get them on their feet and get out. And like four months in, like I'd already caught her going through our stuff in different ways. So for instance, we we wrote we rewrote the kids' social security numbers in the lockbox that we kept them in. I caught her with the key to it. And so we've gotten a, we used to get a bunch of denials for credit cards having used the social security numbers, but it was the wrong ones because we'd sort of it was sort of left not not as bait because it was in my closet, but I had my suspicions. And then she got kept getting fired from jobs. She kept it was a How mess. How did you find like, her? How did you find this nanny? She was a college student, and so she was perfectly functional. 
Oh my God. When, when we met her and then just something just went downhill and downhill and downhill. And so that's why I always feel obligated to say like she was a good nanny, but she was a terrible mother and was just not able to adult on her own. And so when we caught her engaging in sex work out of our home, we were like, nope. You know, at that point, we've got four kids in the house. My oldest at that time was 15. We didn't need exposure to that. And I didn't want strangers in and out of my home. And so I was just like, even if you're only using my house to set up your meetings, that's still illegal. And I don't want cops in my house. Like, I feel strongly about this. And so we gave her the choice. You can move out on your own and we'll take care of the baby until you're ready. Or you can move out with the baby. But either way, you're out by a certain date. And she said, well, I guess I'll go on my own. It'll be easier that way to find a job and whatever. And I said, okay. And what I need from you is to get a job that has like a pay stub so that you have regular income. I need you to get an apartment with a lease on it. When the baby's around, don't engage in sex work. Like that's it. That I feel like that's a pretty low bar. And she's like, okay. And then two weeks later, she called me and said, I'm never gonna get better, you keep her. So surprise, it's a girl. Yeah, you're amazing. I live in chaos. Do you know what I mean? Like, you, it doesn't even seem weird to me anymore. Wow. I mean, first off, your husband is amazing, too, for saying that from the beginning. Like, should we adopt her? Yeah, I hate that he was right. <laughs> you know, like, I don't hate that we adopted her. But, you know, you just hate when they're right. When I'm trying to be all, like, optimistic and stuff. And he's like, no, we're just, it's just this is going to end up in adoption. Let's just go there that route now. <laughs> you don't get to be. I'm supposed to be right. That's how it works. Wow. Amazing. He's a special yeah. guy. And you yes, yes. have had many chapters with him. I, I love that you guys are both into music. You just went to a music festival that you mm. all have really grown up together and been through so much together. Yeah. Talk a little bit about him. I mean, Willem was my differential equations tutor and bartender in college. For the first couple of years, we just we each were dating other people. And so we were just buddies. You know, Willem was just my buddy that get me into the bar. I even graduate. I graduated college at 20. So I never legally entered that bar the whole time. Then it just sort of happened that we both were signaled at the same time. And we're like, let's screw this up, which is what we did for the first two and a half years. Let's, let, let's have a, a terrible, horrible, awful, very bad, no good relationship. And then we kind of, I moved to Boston for grad school and we spent six months with effectively no contact. And then I called him one night to be like, all right, here's the thing. I don't like the stuff you did. I'm sure that there was stuff I did that he didn't like, but I was the one making the call. So I got to say it. <laughs> and I don't like the things that you did, but I love you. So here's the here's the ultimatum sort of of like I'm will I'm willing to walk away and just walk away. By that point we lived eight hours apart. There was no obligation. But I was like, if you wanna try this, you gotta be faithful. We gotta get together more. We've gotta, you know, alternate. He comes down to Boston one week and then I drive up to where he was for grad school, which meant renting a car because I lived downtown, so I didn't have a vehicle at that point. But it was like, we've gotta put more effort into this and we've gotta start in therapy and that kind of thing. He agreed. And I was like, look, and you also have to understand that this fidelity thing, this faithfulness thing, like I don't care about monogamy. That's not really an issue for me one way or the other, but I need to know, right? If you think things are going to change, if you if you think you need something outside of the bounds of what we have in the house, fine. Just talk to me about it. I, I just need, I need to know what's going on. We need to communicate. If you don't, if we start lying, I'm gone. And I used to say, that I'll leave with the kids and you'll never see us again. As the kids got older, it started to be more about, I'll leave the kids with you. <laughs> yeah, I know what that feels like. You know, because you're like, so I can just pretend I'm crazy. <laughs> 
I know exactly what to say, you know? Can you play crazy? Have you ever? No, but I was at the end of, so when, in 2010, you know, I was on home health care for a year with all of the surgical wounds and they reached a point where they were like, okay, you don't need home health care anymore. You don't need doctors anymore. Like, this is it. Like, you're, you're, you're good. Up until that point, I'd been struggling emotionally, but telling myself it made sense. Of course I'm sad. Look at what I'm dealing with. Of course I'm angry. Look at what they did to me. Look look at my life, you know, I'm, and I'm sick. So of course my emotions are messed up. My body is messed up. And then when they were like, look, okay, this is your new baseline. There's nothing else we can do. You're on your own. And I lost it. I, I had no, so now I had to accept that. No, I'm just, I'm, I, I have PTSD from this. I'm messed up. And we've been like my husband and I went to couples therapy, but that's for the couple to deal with, you know, how you, how you communicate, how you relate to each other, how you set boundaries and that kind of thing. But we really had that couples therapy happens in the space between two people. It doesn't really happen inside either person individually. Like that's kind of on you to do that work. And I wasn't seeing an individual therapist. And so all of a sudden I'm left going, what just happened? Like I'm, I'm not okay. And so I, I reached a point of thinking about suicide. I reached a point where I was just like, because I was like, I can't live like this. I can't, this is too hard. This is, it's real. I'm, I, I'm hurting and I'm tired. And I was on the maximum human dosage of opiates by that point. And I was like, I can't do this. I'm not present as a mother. I'm not a good, good enough partner. I'm not functional in the capitalism way of things. Like I can't do this. And so I reached a point of feeling suicidal. And luckily I kind of came to my senses enough to go to my husband. It was on Thanksgiving night in that year and I, to go to him and say, I need to go to the psych unit. Like I need to go to the ER right now. Like I haven't done anything, but I'm gonna, if I stay home. And I couldn't leave it on him to watch me 24 seven, you know, to keep me safe until we could get a therapist. I was like, no, this is, I'm not safe on my own. And so then I knew what words to say to expedite the intake process. You know, I knew what words to say to make sure they wrote the correct things on the paperwork to get me admitted rather than have it stretch out and be a long drawn out process or have them try and send me home or whatever. So never faked illness, but used my training to make sure that the system worked for me. Absolutely. Interesting. Okay. I don't know how to transition this, but this kind of ties into your dad's story. Kind of. I mean, by then, so with my dad, he was an absent father most of my adult life. You know, his favorite thing to say was no news is good news. And I was like, no, just no news is no news. That's just benign neglect. That's all that is. But I always felt kind of like my parents, my parents had me at 17. It was as though my mother turned 40 overnight and my father never got any older in terms of maturity. Like he stayed 17 forever and my mother was this. And so my mother is, is narcissistic and intense, but she can get shit done. Like if you need a war waged or you need a bank robbed, my mother's your girl. Like she could do it. You know, like she's she's just one of those sort of with for, sheer force of will and, and she's just, she gets scary. She said some of the most horrible things to me that had ever been said, but she gets stuff done. My father was always kind of ineffective as an adult. He had trouble holding a job. He had trouble figuring out what he wanted to do with his time. You know, he was in his early 20s when and he's got 
a, you know, a little kid, you know, in your early 20s, you still should be able to play once in a while. But that was right when video games first started happening at home, you know, and my mother bought him a, a desktop computer. My mother worked at IBM and she so she got a discount on this desktop computer. And my, my father was able to play video games and he was so excited about it. But then she gave him shit for playing video games with the computer that she bought him. You know what I mean? Like it was always this weird, tense dynamic. And they divorced when I was 25. And wow, it was, they stayed together a long time. Yeah, I have two sisters. They split up several times. So I have two sisters. Those are both makeup babies. And so they it's just funny not... they know that and you know that. Oh, they, we're very clear. In fact, with the sister that so the one one sister was born when I was nine. And with her, I didn't even know that my mother had moved out into her own apartment because kids are that clueless. And my mother would wait until I'd gone to bed and then she'd go stay at her own apartment. And then my, and it was always my dad's job to get me off to school in the morning anyway. And my mom would be home for a couple hours each evening. And so I had no idea. So when my mother got pregnant with kid number two, we all just moved into her new apartment because it was bigger and nicer than the old one. And I didn't know, like all of this is stuff I learned later. Then my youngest sister was born with muscular dystrophy. And so that everything goes on hold when you've got a child in medical crisis. And I mean, and she's got a super rare form of it. It took 14 months to even get a diagnosis. So everything was weird for a long time, but my parents finally split up when I was 25 and my dad had gotten remarried to a woman who was like the polar opposite of my mother and I don't blame him there. But then in 2017, they went from seemingly happy to very unhappy very quickly. My dad had a stroke, wasn't able to work and she couldn't let go of when are you going back to work? We need money. Now he had he was on disability at the time. Their their mortgage was covered, but she's just we're we're in New England and so she's very, you know, dyed in the wool, Yankee, you're only good if you're making money kind of mindset. And she was really kind of, you know, pecked to death by ducks for him. Like she just wouldn't let go. There's a whole long story that went down, but but ultimately he he took off one night. And it was after they'd had a really bad fight and she was really concerned. She was just like, I don't know what's going on. And so I drove up, they live in New Hampshire and, and we're, in, we're in Massachusetts. And so I drove up to try and find them. And ultimately she was able to track him by credit card. And so I was able to do a welfare check with the police and my father wouldn't let me in the room, in this hotel room. And, and that was weird. Cause like he and I, there was this sort of, like I said, benign neglect, but we didn't have any conflict really. It just, so it was weird that he wouldn't let me in. And I learned later that he had bought a gun that day. But what ended up happening is he, you know, he convinced the cops, I'm fine. And cops can't enter in without your invitation. If you say, no, I'm fine. I'm safe. I'm good. So I went home and I was like, I don't know what's going on. I don't know what's happening. And the next morning early, my phone rang and it was my former stepmother saying, you know, your father came home this morning at like six and went straight to bed. So he's asleep right now. I just got up and thought, and he left his wallet on the kitchen table. It's he's, he's withdrawn some enormous amount of money for him by his standards, a couple thousand dollars in cash in his wallet. So like his wallet wouldn't even lie flat. She's like, so I, I opened it cause it's, it's half mine. And I was afraid he was going to leave me broke. When I opened his wallet, a receipt for a gun fell out of the wallet. I don't know what to do. And my answer was get the, get the hell out of the house because suicide and murder suicide happen 
often with spouses if there's conflict that kind of thing like that may have been why he went home i don't know like nobody you can't know you want to assume safety so i was like leave the house call 911 because i used to do crisis work in new hampshire as well as down here i knew what paperwork to ask for and what words to say and in new hampshire there's a quirk in the law where almost anybody can hospitalize almost anyone else against their will for three days so like you've heard of the baker act or a 5150 in massachusetts it's a section 12 up in new hampshire it's an iea involuntary emergency admission and there's a paperwork that that you fill out with the justice of the peace they go in whether they're having symptoms or not effectively and then it's up to the hospital to sort that out and yes that's that's a whole other list of stories but that that's a system that gets abused but in my case it was like okay i know how to do this something's wrong at the very least he needs his meds evaluated or something this, this is not like him he'd never had behavior like this like this big impulsive behavior manic episodes or whatever he'd never had it before but with a lot of mental illnesses they either come in when you're in like late adolescence for early symptoms or there's like a secondary peak in your 50s where you suddenly start having symptoms of schizophrenia or bipolar that you never had before. We don't have any idea why. I say we. There are people who think they know why, but all I care is, okay, he's in a dangerous area, being physically compromised. You know, he he could move after his stroke, but he was still going through rehab for that. Not, you know, he had just quit his job. He just walked in and quit, you know, outright. And so he's making these very impulsive decisions and and whatever. And so so he was admitted to a hospital in, in New Hampshire. Up until all, through all of this. I'm working with the former stepmother. I felt like we were on the same team of trying to get him help. While he was in the hospital, she filed for a restraining order. So he couldn't go home after he was released. And I was like, what are we doing? What are we doing here? There's, there was never any actual verbalized threat. But the problem is she works within the justice system. So she knew who to ask and how. So my, my here's my father sitting in a psychiatric unit in New Hampshire. He's broke. He's literally got the clothes he walked in wearing and that's it. He can't return home and we don't have any family out here. So he has no contacts, no friends, no nowhere else. So his he was his options were either move into my house or move into a homeless shelter. And I was like, you cannot do a shelter. Like, first of all, psychiatrically, that's not a stable place. Medically, it's not a stable. Just we put two of my kids in one bedroom so he could have his own bedroom move here. And so he did. And this is late 2017. And on Christmas Eve of 2017, so a couple weeks later, like we hadn't heard from his then wife. And on Christmas Eve, two cops showed up with a summons for court for the restraining order that she decided to pursue. Because when you get a restraining order, you get a temporary one. And then there has to be a hearing for permanent. And so she decided to pursue it as permanent. And so, you know, Merry Christmas there. And that was a couple weeks later, like early January. We show up for that. And the first thing out of her lawyer's mouth, we didn't even have a lawyer because we didn't think we'd need one. First thing out of her lawyer's mouth is she is filing for divorce as well. So now my my father has nowhere to live, learns he's getting a divorce, he's unemployed, he's medically, whatever. And so we were like, just move in with us, move in, stay with us. You got the space already. The next six months were really tough through the, the process of their divorce, even though it, was, it went through mediation rather than court, but still it was, it was rough. But then it started to get better. She actually had to pay him for support because she was the one that was employed and she covered his health insurance. She was aware that he was unemployed when she filed for divorce. So he got like 70% of the house proceeds, things like that. Like, so it, it took the edge off while he was staying with us. I walked him through the process of applying for social security. So he had an income there. 
there and you you're still allowed to get a part-time job when you're on social security so we were looking he had tried a couple things and didn't really like them but i was like that's fine he had a setback he had another stroke while he was living with us which is terrifying because it happened right in front of me he was about to drive me to an appointment and all of a sudden he was making sounds like the cadence of speech but it wasn't words and he was drooling and i was like you know i was like go like that you know go like this are you having a stroke and he was just like like he couldn't even understand what i was saying so yes so he had to go through rehab and everything for that again so it was just it was a lot and he felt i felt like finally he was starting to find level ground as as 2018 rolled around he was starting to find you know toward the end of 2018 i mean he was he had, he'd been divorced for almost a year by that point he, he was separated for almost a year the divorce was final he, they sold the house pretty quickly so he had the proceeds from that and so like we got his car so he had more independence he started traveling he started doing first day trips you know around new england and then did you encourage that? I let it. Like, I didn't. I know I, you're I was, into travel. <laughs> but but in this case, I couldn't have gone. You know, I was busy de- kind of dealing with the kids and I was trying to give him that sort of, it's a, it's a really fine line to walk between being someone's source of support. Like, he was in therapy and he was on meds, but it was early days there. And so I felt like I was just really only source of support outside. Gosh. And and yet he's still my father and he's still a functional, competent adult. And so I can't tell him to do things or whatever. So he started doing longer, and then he did a long drive. He drove down to Florida and back. And again, he was he went down to visit his father who lived in Florida. And so it was like, he was, it felt okay. And he had a calendar in his room of like different events that year that he wanted to try and get to. Like one, for instance, somewhere in the Southwest, there's a, a huge hot air balloon festival that happens in the desert. And he wanted to go to that. And he wanted to go to New Orleans. And like, he had this list and he was starting to chip away at those places. And one of the first places on his list was Las Vegas. And so he was like, I'm going to go to Vegas. Okay. He purchased round trip tickets and had, you know, plans for the car and everything. Like, like he, he did the all of the planning himself. And so I was just like, have fun. And while he was gone, he seemed fine. He posted, was posting selfies on Facebook which you know dad selfies so like they were terribly lit and bad angles but it was still he seemed he seemed happy enough then I texted him to be like I I don't remember what day you're coming home and his response was like I I'm not sure like it was going to be I don't know let's say Saturday he's like but I'm thinking of staying longer I was like okay you know love you love you back fine and that was it and then I didn't hear from him but we didn't ever talk every single day except when he was living here and so it's kind of like he probably needed he was enjoying the space and the independence a little bit of travel and so i wasn't worrying about him in that moment i'll never know what happened i'll, I'll never know i know physically what happened i know how but but what i do know is how, because I've, I've seen his journals he journaled pretty intensely toward the end of his life like every day and in his journals up until april 14th of 2019 he seemed fine he was a little frustrated that he didn't enjoy vegas as much as he thought he would he thought it was too crowded and it's a younger city and he felt like an old man surrounded by children you know that kind of thing so it's sort of the the, the sort of kvetching that you might expect you know get off my lawn sort of thing <laughs> but you you know but he was he seemed okay and then his last something happened and his last journal entry is a thank you note to all of his care providers his doctors and so on and there's like a one line about like and, and to anybody else who ever loved me or said that they did thank you and that's that's how his journal ended and so thursday night the 18th of april i got a phone call at about 9 p.m a lot 
was weird at that very moment. I was editing an episode of my podcast, so normally I wouldn't have my phone with me. If I do have my phone with me, I don't have the volume on. If I do have the ringer on, I don't answer it. Like, nobody calls me. What are you doing calling me? Don't call me. And especially at seven at night, you know, or whatever it was. But all of those things happened, so I answered the phone, and it was the Clark County Coroner's office saying that my father had been found in his hotel room. I immediately assumed heart attack. He'd had his first heart attack at 30 and he just had a bunch of cardiac and then then, then he had started having the strokes in more recent years. And so I, I assumed cardiopulmonary something. No, it was absolutely suicide. I'll never know. I'll never know what happened between those, the penultimate and the, the last journal entry. After the last stroke, he lived with us for another six months or so before he died. And in, in that time frame, he would get headaches or he would get dizzy spells or short of breath. And I kept taking him to the ER because he would always think I'm having another stroke. And so I've always wondered if maybe something like that happened while he was in Vegas and he didn't have someone to sort of go with him to the ER and sit with him there. But that's that's going on guesswork. You know, like, I don't actually know. I don't know how they knew to call me. There's a lot of details that are a little weird. There was a long time, a solid six months after his death, where we were very concerned that we were going to end up in the headlines because there was reason to believe it was an assisted suicide. No. And that's super not legal. And I was afraid that they were going to sort of pursue that but ultimately they still believe it was an assisted suicide but they don't know who the person was oh my god but so he died in a las vegas hotel room and there's you know video with the corridors and that kind of thing and so they can see someone leaving the room but <gasps> they couldn't identify who that person was and the method that was used is one that is very common among assisted suicide so i oh was terrified of that because i was like this is all hard enough as it is and so i mean life broke everything broke in that moment in that phone call like life is going along one way and you think things are a certain way and then it's a sudden 180 you know i had to go out to vegas i flew out the next morning luckily oh you know god bless my my primary care saw saw me first thing the next morning to prescribe anti-nausea meds because apparently my reaction to grief is to start throwing up heroically and to prescribe sleep meds because i was like i was wired and and, and whatever and so that kind of we held together with you know spit in a prayer to get me through the that process because you don't want to be the jittery person on the airplane like nobody needs that so I flew out I had to identify him and then I had to meet my sister at the airport one arrived at like midnight I want to say and then the other took a the cab because her plane was delayed and so my other sister arrived at like three in the morning and that's the, so this is all on friday where i'll get there and now we have to wait till monday to claim his belongings that were found in the hotel with him and to meet with the funeral home and so we spent this really weird out of space like liminal space feeling of to be in this city where everybody's drunk and everybody's naked and everybody's having fun and flashing lights and gambling and you're grieving hardcore and you can't even breathe because it hurts so much and it was just really odd. It was like we barely, you know, we barely left the hotel because it was like we walked down the strip briefly and I was like, I, I can't do this. It, it, that this must have been outerworldly. It was bizarre. The way that you just described that even, it, it was, almost it feels was, like time stopped. Yeah, it was like this weird in between whatever. And so like, I mean, some people, you learn you learn so much about people so fast when there's this kind of a, a death because I never hid from, from moment one. I was like, I view suicide as effectively death by natural cause. It's just that you have a little bit more involvement in what day it happens, but it's like, you know, diabetes requires constant 
maintenance and, and care, so to mental health. And so if you go long enough, eventually something breaks. I don't think rationality by definition is working to stay alive. That's what the brain does is it tries to find ways to keep living. Suicide, and I'm not talking about medically assisted suicides here. I'm talking about like a mental health crisis suicide. That's kind of by definition, not a fully rational act. Like my father was a young guy. He was 60, he was 59 when he died. Oh my God. So there was, there was time left. He had plans. He had a return ticket. He had family that loved him. And so I don't know what tipped over, but all that is to say, not fully rational in the moment. And so I don't think that it was a selfish act. I don't think it was a cruel act. I think he would, something just broke for him and he just couldn't anymore. I decided right up front, I'm not going to be ashamed about this. I'm going to, I'm going to talk about it because this is my life right now. And so, you know, I had, I had one podcaster, I was supposed to be on her show, like I was supposed to record on her show that day that I flew to Vegas. And so obviously I can't do it. And so I, I, I wrote her and I was just like, yeah, my dad, my dad just died. Like, I can't do it. She was like, well, don't tell anybody he died by suicide. Like, don't tell anybody that. That's that's embarrassing. And I was like, excuse me? You're like, that wasn't the right show for me. <laughs> and so the next morning, the Saturday, I got a call from a mutual acquaintance. And I didn't know her well, this this other podcaster. I was going on her show as a favor as we do you know you show i'll show up in yours you go night you like it was no big but i didn't know her at all she it was a mutual acquaintance is like did you listen to her show this morning and i was like no why would i do that like <laughs> i'm 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 mad at her right now i'm not gonna and they were like you uh you may want to listen and so the show was just a it was about a 20 minute long interview with an author of a book about business something business and management she spent a solid six minutes going off on this monologue about how this other podcaster was going to be my guest today but her father killed himself and uh -uh. she's not even hiding it and you know it's just i would be so ashamed if i was her and blah blah and like and talk i i cannot even tell you like it was so yikes it was so yikes and and you could tell her guest is like uncomfortable to, as heck i'm here to sell my Oh, you know, like, but I mean, six minutes, you know how long six minutes takes to fill as a monologue, right? And so it was, it was horrific. Oh my and God, Kate, so I'm I, so sorry. That is I, brutal. I contacted her and was like, <laughs> that episode is getting pulled down right now. And she was like, pardon me while I roll my eyes back into my head again. She fancies herself not just a podcaster, but a journalist. And I'm like, okay, journalism is more than just interviews for one. And two, journalism does not involve monologues imposing your horrible judgy beliefs on someone else's grief and does not involve capitalizing on someone else's grief when you're trying to help this guy sell books. By the way, that's fine, friend, pal, buddy. I'll just give a call to the school that you're attending for journalism that you plaster all over your podcast is that your podcast is a project for the school. I'm just going to give a call to your professor to make sure they, they listen to this episode and hear it. And that episode was down so fast. So like you learn the worst, you see the worst in people. People don't know what to say. People want to know how he died. Sometimes they'll ask and I'll be like, doesn't matter. It doesn't legitimately doesn't matter. And I don't like it's out there. I've said it at least once early, early on when I was still in like the early shock phase. So some people know, but I, it's just a matter of it's not done in the suicide prevention community. You try to avoid details to a degree there was that you get you get the thoughtless questions from some people but then also people were amazing you know my high school best friend lives outside of las vegas i hadn't seen her in 
15 years and she came in to take me out to dinner you know and another friend from high school had donuts delivered to our hotel room on Sunday morning because he knew we weren't going to want to do the the buffet and be around all those people and so you know and so like people did really really sweet things mostly people get it I think so I came home another you know my husband is is fantastic and so by the time I came home he asked first he didn't just make the executive decision but he was like can I empty your dad's room you know of the of the major stuff he's like not to get rid of it but like can I just put it in boxes and put it away and kind of neutralize that space and I was like please you know because otherwise I'll do it and physically I shouldn't I broke my back years ago and emotionally I shouldn't yet and so he did by the time I got home it just looked like a normal like guest room and then a couple weeks later my my second kid moved in there and it was just felt very normal and it felt very chill you know weeks later I read through his journals and that's where because I was looking for like why what happened there the answer is there's no answer I don't know and that's a really hard thing to sit with but so this all loops back around then to my mother My parents had been, by this point, they had been divorced for 17 years. Like my father had had a whole other marriage in there, you know? And my mother decided this was going to be all about her. And so she wanted to come out to Vegas with my sisters and I, and I was like, no, like I can't be with you in a a hotel room. Like I can barely, like we were by this point already really struggling to communicate. Like it had been a long time. She she would say horrible things and then be like, well, yeah, well, but I said it. I must've meant it at the time, but we're fine now. move on and she drank heavily and she just there was nothing like it was already falling apart it's just that the wheels hadn't quite fallen off yet and maybe two weeks after I got back from Vegas I was on on the phone with my mother we had had a couple of fraught conversations but I was was really trying I was really I just wanted one parent you know I just wanted one parent who was gonna look at me and be like it's okay we got this we'll we'll, we'll figure it and her answer wasn't sad she's like you know I, I figured out what happened like you know when your father he needed he needed peace and quiet he needed a a, a peaceful quiet place and instead he lived in your house which was just all this chaos and you're so wrapped up in your own self and your own stuff and your own kids and your own podcast that you weren't paying enough attention to him where were you anyway because you're a you're a clinical psychologist how come you didn't know something was wrong oh my god that's really hard and I was just I just just hung up the phone like I didn't <laughs> even know what you didn't even know what to say to that no you know and oh my god that's really oh my god so the next day I spoke to my sister who was trying to play like middleman and she was like look I think mom was just really grieving and not thinking but I don't think she meant it and I'm like well she sure said it but my modus operandi always before was to take some space and then let it go because Mm. I always kind of thought like you know my husband didn't have a ton of family around his his adoptive parents are out of the picture his biological mother is wonderful but she lives in Michigan so it's far away and so my mom liked my husband better than me so I was like well at least he gets a mother figure out of it and at least she's good with my kids and so I can kind of I'm kind of used to being the bad guy in her book so fine but then it turns out that the next day she called my eldest who had just turned 19 like days before and said all the same things that you know if you kids had behaved better if your mother had paid more attention if she bothered to use her psychological skills at home instead of just at you know just at work then your grandfather would still be alive and i was like we're done hard no i'll be your punching bag to a degree i will i will accept a lot of crap from a lot of people but you don't go after my kids you don't make my kid feel like they are the reason that my father died 
Like that is, it was beyond the pale. And so I had a very firm discussion with my mother then about there is no contact, none, zero. Zero contact to me, zero contact with the kids. I will let you know. My mother, because there was the legal investigation and because the cremation and shipping and everything took a while, my father died somewhere probably around April 15th, we think. He was discovered on the 17th and I was called on the 18th, but we didn't have the memorial until Memorial Day weekend, until May 25th or something like that. I told my mother, do not come to that under no circumstances. You are not to come to my home because it was held here. You are not welcome in my home right now and you're not going to make this about you, you know, and turn, I learned much later that she came anyway. She stayed in a hotel and so she went during the memorial, she went to the beach where we had scattered my father's ashes and like walked and cried and I'm like get over yourself like you're yeah you're having some grief but this is not the Pam show this is not about you my sisters both knew that she was out and they didn't tell me in fact lied about it for a solid year so that wasn't cool and so not a I guess six months so that was in May of 2019 and at the end of 2019 Willem my husband tried to have a conversation with her to be like look here's here's what you need to do you need to say here's your script I didn't mean it it's not your fault I love you. That's it. Can you say those things? And my mother's response to him was, having her ruined my life, I can say whatever I want to her. Because apparently it's my fault that she got pregnant at 17. And I don't know how it ruined her life exactly, but I, you know, she's told me like the many, many ways in which having me has been nothing but misery for her. And so I was like, okay, that's your choice then. So I called her on New Year's Eve 2019 because I kind of wanted in my head, I wanted to be able to say I hadn't talked to her in the 2020s. And again, I said the same thing to her. I just need a mom. There's an illustration of grief that's like a bullseye and that people closest to the person that died, the concept is that they're in the, the center ring. And then the, the, the less close you are with that person, you get subsequent rings. Attention and support needs to be directed inward. So the closer you are to the person that's gone, people should be offering support to you, not looking, not seeking it. And my mother was trying to put herself right in the center. And, and I was like, not after 17 years of divorce. And by the way, endless swaths of his journals talking about things she said to him that still rattled around in his brain years later about how she he disgusted her. He was pathetic. He was all, the, all these things she would say. To be clear, I do not blame her one little bit for his suicide, but he didn't want her around. They made that choice. And so I didn't feel bad at all saying, don't come to the memorial. And I kind of had a suspicion something was going on with the way my sisters were acting. They showed up later, a little bit later than they'd said they would on a Friday night. And so I was like, you know what? It's nice weather. Let's all go out right now and scatter the ashes right the second. And they kind of pushed back like, well, you said it was going to be tomorrow morning. And I think that the plan was for my mother to just watch from a distance and pretend she'd been there. But I pushed for no, let's go do it right now. It's a full moon. It's, you know, one of my father's favorite things to do was to go outside and watch the planes at night tracking because we're on a, a flight path for Logan Airport in Boston. And so I was like, we'll go watch the planes. We'll go scatter his ashes. We'll be done. And we did. And I believe that that added to my mother's being mad that her, her plan was foiled. And so during the memorial party gathering, whatever it was at my house, you know, there's no service. It was just sort of people coming up and looking at pictures and a lot of awkward standing around mostly. During that, my mother went and walked on that beach. I think that was intrusive at best. What else then did you was, love about him? He was a gadgety kind of guy. He was into fidget toys before fidget toys were cool. He could talk his way into anything. He was, a, he was the quintessential Irish storyteller. He used to talk about how he knew a little bit about a lot of stuff. And so here's a guy who was a father before he graduated high school and 
he was, I think he ended up finishing his associate's degree, but he never pursued education in that sense. But he was very, very smart. And he, so he's sort of my proof that education and intelligence really have nothing to do with each other. And when he was in a good place, he was in a really good place. You know, he, he knew that like, for instance, kids don't need things. You can see my house, my house is full of clutter. Kids don't need things, but he would take the kids to go throw rocks off a bridge, you know, or like his, one of his favorite things to do here because we live on the ocean and so we can leave the windows open a lot which means he, he could hear sirens and traffic and that kind of thing and so if there was a big car accident nearby he'd be like hop in the car let's go see <laughs> like that's so that's so classy all right let's go you know get in loser we're gonna go look at an accident and, and so that's what we would do my mother's the one who you would call to get things done my dad was the one you would call if you needed him to say the right thing mm, and me i love that you know and i feel like daughters need that i you know and i didn't need it often i was out of the house when i by the time i was 16 i started college and like the first you know i, I you leave for college in August. I go home in October for the first long weekend and I already didn't have a bedroom in the house. <laughs> surprise, they didn't tell me. I just, surprise, no, no, you're gonna sleep on the couch or, you know, whatever, fun. So I was very hyper-independent very early on, lived my own life. And, but the thing is my father was able to absorb that and let me grow up and then kind of meet with me as, you're not ever equal exactly because they're always your parent, but at least to meet with me as a fellow adult. And my mother never could. Mm. She didn't like it. She doesn't like babies and she doesn't like it once kids get over about 15, 16 because she, she wants small people she can boss around. And she had that for a long time. And then I moved away so she could kind of pretend, I think, or she could start bossing my kids around instead. I got all the last time I spoke to her, New Year's Eve, we had the conversation where I said to her the same thing that my husband had about like, look, I just need I just need a mom. She just wanted to loop around to how this really was all my fault. Everything everything bad ever has always been my fault. And I mean, she would list things off like you did this, you did that, you did this. I was like, I was four, <laughs> you know, things like that. My birthday is May 30th. And so she sent flowers on my birthday in 2020. And I was livid. I was so mad. I was like, you have no right. You don't get to be the performative, happy grandma mom here. Like, you don't have the right to send gifts if you can't say appropriate words. And so we gave the flowers to a neighbor and I called her and I was like, look you know how you surround yourself at work with all these much younger women my mother by the way is a social worker so you'd think she'd maybe know better she knows better she just makes her choices and so i was like you you surround yourself with little new social my mother doesn't have friends she has these little to me they're kids you know 21 year olds that you work with i want you go in to work the next time you do because at the time we were still on lockdown although my mother ignored most precautions because she's apparently stronger than a virus. I, but I'm like, you go in and I got all dramatic. I was like, you go in and you tell all your little friends at work that your oldest and your husband and all four kids have died in a fiery car accident and you're never going to see him again. Like, and that's, I'm not usually really prone to the big dramatic like gesture, but sometimes you just got to give in and lean into the angst. And that's what I said. I was like, I am done. We are done here. And I haven't spoken to her since and I won't. Like, there's nothing healthy that can come out of this. There's no, I have to stop pretending like next time it'll be better, next time it'll be better, because that's always what I would do. This is a person who may want to have a relationship. I don't know, but I don't think she can have a healthy relationship. And so that becomes my responsibility now to, to guard the boundaries on, on my end. Because my kids need to see, like, if I ever made my kids feel that way, I would want them to cut me off. Wow. I don't want, 
I don't want them to allow me to abuse them. And so I, I don't think she sets out to be abusive, and yet she is. And so especially, you know, my youngest, the kiddo that's adopted, Danny, she has autism. And my mother doesn't fully believe in autism. My mother really hated that we adopted Danny in the first place. She didn't think we should. She was always snotty to Danny, would put her in situations where she would like ask her a bunch of questions, which Danny doesn't cope well with questions and that kind of thing. And so I was like, I, I, I have to protect my child. Like I can't trust this woman alone with her. I, since we've cut ties, I've heard from all of my other kids about things that my mother had said or done to them when I wasn't around. And so I was like, you know, it's our society values, but it's family. And I'm like, yes, to an extent, but how come she doesn't get the same, but that's your daughter. Why don't you treat her better? That's you know, a good I question. One question I have is other people that have gone through suicide, right? I mean, I, I personally know people, right? You said that people don't know what to ask. People don't know what to say. Do you have any advice around that? Not that you're like the speaker for it now or anything like that. But. In, in ways I've become it. It's okay to acknowledge, like it, it, I think it helps to acknowledge when you do know other people that have died by suicide. Saying, you know, words matter tremendously. So saying died by suicide rather than committed suicide, because committed, first of all, implies a rational choice. And secondly, you commit crimes you commit fraud you commit so like you see what i'm saying like it's a it's a That's pejorative a phrasing and so i talk about how he died by suicide the grief is complex because you spend so much time looking for answers and there's no timeline for it people get confused about the phases of grief because they think it's stages of grief and so for stages implies you go through one and then you go through two and then you go through three and so it's denial bargaining anger depression acceptance right in that order. Now, first of all, it's not like that. I went straight to throwing up. Like that was my first step. I don't know where that is in the phases of grief, but but the, there was definite denial, but not for very long once you've had to identify him. You know, there's no, it doesn't work that way. And then maybe you'll get angry and then go to depression and then back to anger and then back to denial one morning where you'll knock on the door. Thinking, like it's not, it's not a clean, smooth thing. The reason, part of the reason for that is that those phases of grief were not ever designed for grieving death. They were written by a doctor for patients who have received a terminal diagnosis. So you are effectively grieving yourself. So that's where the denial of I'm not that sick or the bargaining of, well, if I take these vitamins, then I won't die as soon. Or if I do this or that, that, that's what the bar, you know, if I'm a better person, if I give more to my, to my church or synagogue, if I volunteer, that sort of thought. And so it doesn't fit, it mostly fits with grieving other losses, but that's not what everybody was intended to do. Acknowledging for people, like I said, the physical, the physicality of grief was something I was not prepared for. I still don't sleep. I'm not unhappy at night anymore. I'm not, I'm not anxious or, you know, it's not the kind of insomnia where like you're, what do I have to do tomorrow or all these, I don't have an internal monologue ever. And so when I'm awake at night, I'm just listening to podcasts. I'm just awake. I'm just pretty chill, but I am awake. I, I suddenly function on four hours of sleep a night instead of eight, you know, and that was the thing. And a lot of people I've talked to are like, yeah, me too. The nausea is common. Gravity feels different. And I know it sounds bizarre to say so, but on the days where it really hit me, 
Because let me tell you, loss by suicide is complicated enough when you're a psychologist and he dies by suicide. That really messes with you. Like my mother didn't need to say anything. I was thinking all of those things that she was saying already. It's just that eventually I would have worked my way around to look, he had bodily agency and, and the ability to make his own decisions. Like there's nothing, you cannot save another human being. But so I had some really messed up days, like not dangerous for me, but really just messed up heavy, hard days. And on the worst days, literally lying on the floor helps. I don't know why. Like I, but I've talked to other grief survivors who say the same thing, that there's something about just get as low to the ground as you can and just let it just stay there for a little while. Look, the, otherwise the only time I'm on the bathroom floor is if I'm like cleaning it or throwing up, you know? So, but but there are times where it's like, that's just literally your face on the tile, just You saying breathing. that you had to identify him is enough to like completely freak me out. And I had to do some real shuffling to make that happen because my sisters wanted to go with me. I'm nauseous thinking about that. And they shouldn't have, they didn't live with him. They weren't in touch with him. They had, neither of them had spoken to him for about a year prior to his death. So he wouldn't have wanted them to see him because of the means it was an unusual so i'm trying to say this as delicately as i can that he didn't look simply like what you see on tv when someone's made up to look like a corpse it looked different there was absolutely no there's no way it was an accident and there was no there was no coming back from that moment in the coroner's office and so that was on friday so i i, I rushed i flew out i rushed over to the coroner's office kind of squeaked in just before end of day to be able to identify him but by that point the evidence locker had closed and so i couldn't get his stuff so then i rushed back to the airport meet my sister there we go and stay in the hotel we have the weekend and then on monday we went to the funeral home that was going to do the, the cremation and then the coroner and then the hotel to get the remainder of his luggage and that kind of deal. And while we were at the funeral home, the woman mentions he's downstairs if you want to view him before cremation. And one of my sisters wanted to, the other didn't. And I was like, absolutely not. Like, no, no, you don't need to see this. You do not need that memory in your head. I don't think he would have wanted you to see him like this. But more importantly, seeing him like this will not help the grieving process for you in any way. It just adds one more snapshot into your memory bank. But, you know, I think you should remember people when they're alive. And that includes visiting people at the end of life, if you can, because that's valid. Like we went and saw my great grandmother the day before she died and she was frail and she was she had dementia and she couldn't speak and she she didn't recognize us but that was i think paying tribute to who she was that's different than going out and staring at her after she died like that if she wanted a closed casket she gets a closed casket my father wanted cremation he gets cremation and part of that was the understanding that that's what he wanted and he didn't want to be observed do you feel like he loved you yes i don't feel that he believed he deserved love and i didn't know how to say it to him clearly enough that you don't get to decide how i feel about you you know i i love you because i do whether you think you deserve it or not whether you think you earn it or not whether you want me to or not because a lot of people who who reach that point of feeling suicidal want to be able to say the whole world would be better if I wasn't in it and my answer is absolutely not and you don't get to decide losing you 
would wreck me. I do know that about six months before he died, he called, it's now 988, but the, the suicide prevention lifeline number, and he talked to somebody. And I don't know what they said to him, but it sort of literally talked him off a ledge in a, in a sense, because he lived for another six months. You can't fix another person completely, but something that, that the woman on the other end of the phone said helped him for a little bit. And so I'm deeply grateful that that service exists. And I look at people differently now, you know, with just a look, the hole that you leave in somebody's life. When our kids ask the question about why does my heart hurt when somebody dies? Or why does it hurt? And our answer is, well, when, when you love somebody, a little piece of them goes into your heart and a little piece of you goes into their heart. And so then even if you're not together, even if you're far apart, they're with you and you're with them. And then if they die, you get that piece of you back and a little extra of them to stay with you. And so your heart has to make space and it hurts to kind of cram in there. You have to hold more of them all at once because you can't just visit them easily again, but they're always with you. That, that part of you is always together. And that, that physicality of grief, like it's not something I had ever been prepared for, but it's there. And so I tell people all the time, you know, that I love them, that I care about them. And with my podcast, the disclaimer is it's not safe for work because of the topic matter. And, I, you know, I maintain privacy and confidentiality. And then I include the suicide prevention lifeline number. I wanted to kind of end it with something instead of just trailing off into oblivion. And so I ended it with the sentence, you matter. I'm so glad you brought that up because I wanted to tell you that you matter. I wanted to give that to you. Yeah. You know, and I love and that message. It's so I needed. Don't think it, and I don't think enough people hear it and I don't think enough people say it. And the irony there is, so my dad was never on my show. I, we just never got around to it. We planned it and it just never quite happened. But his is the voice in the disclaimer for like the first 40 episodes. And then I started mixing it up with other podcast trends and that kind of thing. But still, every once in a while for special episodes or whatever, I'll pull it out and use his. So I do have that little snippet of his voice. And it's him saying, you matter. And I, I wish that. he could have heard it himself. But sometimes mm. we just can't. Is there anything you want to ask my dad? Offhand, I want to ask him to write letters to you and your kids Ooh. that you can read both now while he's still alive and leave letters leave items of his for you i want him to plan for his eventual loss because it's hard enough and to acknowledge his own importance so i'm not asked a question but i'm asking of him you know whatever your favorite item of clothing of his is put it in a plastic bag so it smells like him probably that hat well it's funny my i i can't reach it <laughs> here but my father wore a hat very much like that yeah and it's cute. sitting right there on my bookshelf that's the thing is that having my father in my home you know his, his items in my home when he died meant that I had access to a lot of things which helped you know I, I did seal up some of his clothes and I'm just getting to a point where I can like wear his sweatshirt once in a while and find it comforting rather than hurting you know so that's the kind of thing is that like nobody likes to think about death but leaving with a clear list of financials and the will in place next of kin and your healthcare proxy lined up those things are tremendously important for because grief is hard enough so do those things and then the extra level is you know 
like I said, leave a note, you know, if you, if you have an illness, if you have time, schedule a delivery of flowers from your, yourself to your family for six months later, you know, or a year later or something. There are ways to do it, you know, work with another family member, to, that kind of thing. Like, just acknowledge that, like, look, nobody wants to talk about death, but there are ways that you can still hold your family. And we kind of cobbled it together here. And I did have my dad's journals and that helped some, although ultimately we ended up deciding to burn them for, out of respect for his privacy. There's things in there he didn't want the world to know whoa so he he said in one of them if you know if you find this after my death burn it and so okay oh my god kate that must have been hard to do both you know it was hard but it was doing the thing he wanted wow done it wasn't mine it wasn't mine to keep and it certainly wasn't like what am i going to do it with it like i i'm not going to give it to my sisters i'm not going to give it to my kids there's nothing to be done here with it except follow his wishes and we have a little so part of his memorial is we have i live in salem and you can't have in-ground fire pits but we have like a little fire bowl in the backyard you know and so part of the memorial is that we had note cards and pens on the table next to the fire pit so people could write him a note and toss it in the fire as like the way to sort of deliver it to him and so it felt like giving burning the journals was sort of giving it back to him in that sense wow that's powerful yeah and it and it, it was hard and, and it sucked and you know you want to hold on to everything but but you can't enshrine every piece of paper he ever touched and every sweatshirt he ever owned you can't you can't turn that into insurance because then you stop living because you're so busy holding on to someone else's life you have to find ways to smooth his life into mine and let go and that letting go is really hard especially when i was having people come at me and tell me i was handling it wrong and that i had handled it wrong and i everything you know what a failure i was but to realized that like no I did everything I could I think we got you know for a year and a half he lived with us and I think we gave him the best we could and I think he was happy we have pictures of him smiling but I also have journal entries you know where he talked about that and there came a point where it was like okay I'm gonna kind of literally close the book I'm gonna let him go with the dignity that he wanted I'm not gonna leave his his writings open for people to see who didn't want to be part of his life you don't get to be part of his death wow I feel like you got like privy to a side of him that others didn't yeah i guess i guess i kind of did volunteer for it but i didn't know what i was volunteering for when i when i did but i mean that happens everybody has that those who's left behind after a death and so that's another thing that i would ask of people is like you know we all have drawers or piles somewhere and if it's just clutter no big deal i had no problem dealing with clutter but if you got secrets get rid of them you know if you got like a that's secret a good stash, message that's a yeah, good I mean, message for real get rid of it because burn it because he's he's gone i'm left with in, in this case it was just journals it was nothing like we didn't find anything illegal or whatever in in his room we we did find the the case for his gun but the gun itself was not in massachusetts so somewhere fun fact i'm a gun owner even though i feel so strongly against it but because i was the executor of his estate somewhere in new hampshire there's a gun in a lock box i don't know where it's it's in a facility somewhere and all i know is that in the trunk of his car was the empty gun case but in massachusetts you need different licensure to carry and i he also knew that i wasn't okay with guns in the home and so he had a locker up in new hampshire somewhere and i don't know where it is so you'll be okay without it i'm not looking for it yeah no we're good we're good but things like that like obviously my, my father hit crisis but i feel like even having hit crisis there were only a couple of things like that like the gun and the journals that really required intense personal handling in some way but by and large like he had a 
identified me as executor and next of kin, even though I didn't know I was. I feel like that's love in some ways. I, I think so. I think it's the best he knew how to do was he was trying to, I, I believe he intended to come home. He had round trip tickets. He had, like I said, reading the journals of his other days. He was looking forward to coming home. He was looking forward to this this balloon, this hot air balloon rally in the Southwest. And I, it's it's in like September or something like that. So like he, he had intentions of coming home. He was thinking about going to Chicago with me because I did my first live show actually on his birthday in Chicago that year. And so I ended up going on my own. You know, I took my oldest kid with me and so that I had help. But, you know, I feel like he did the best he could. He intended to come home. But even with that, he had cleaned up a lot after himself. How are you meshing him into your life and your show now? I talk about it. I don't believe that suicide should be stigmatized. Mm. I'm better each year, I think, because of it. I, I, t I seem to be very, for whatever reason, sensitive to anniversaries. And so for me, like the six month anniversary, you know, his he, he, he died in April. We, we're never going to know exactly when. His death certificate says April 17th, which pisses me off because it's my eldest's birthday. But I, I don't have any reason to believe he was actually alive then. It was just that's when he was discovered. And then they called me the next day. I had trouble on his birthday, which is in July. I had trouble at the six month mark. I had a lot of trouble at the year mark. And so for the first year, all of those firsts are difficult. And then after that, it's almost harder because everybody's like, oh yeah, okay, you got through a year. Good. And it's like, no, the second year is harder because everybody else has gone back to normal and you're still sitting here with your grief and you don't know what to do with it, except absorb it. And so we, we try to talk to the kids about who he was. I mean, he was called Grandpa Starburst is what they called him because he always had Starburst for them, the candies for those not familiar and um, that's cute and we talk about you know going for walks and throwing rocks off the bridge and just trying to absorb that in and he, he was a tremendous supporter of my show in the ways that he knew how to be and so I have his his disclaimer and that comes out and I, I just I, I use it carefully you know because I want it to mean something I want it to maintain impact for me, at least. And and I think that's what you do is you absorb someone's, you absorb the shape of him into my heart. Does that tie into your tattoo? I mean, which tattoo? I, have, I know you're a collector of them. I have seven, the Kintsuji one? Uh, no, this the Kintsuji tattoo is just... The just because it, that's, one. That's, that's, the Kintsuji tattoo is a heart. In Japanese culture, there's an art form called Kintsuji where if you drop ceramic or similar, you don't throw it out. You collect the pieces and you mix gold leaf in with the glue and you glue it back together. And you then you find the beauty in the the formation of the broken lines, you find beauty in the broken pieces. And so I have a an anatomical heart with Kintsuji lines. And that's that's my my eldest and I have the same tattoo. And it's really kind of about having been broken so many times and still finding beauty in that and worth in that. But no, my dad always wrote in the cover, inside cover of books when he, if you gave you one. And so I already had a semicolon tattoo, which is a symbol for suicide prevention. The idea of don't let this be the end of your sentence. Just take a pause a semicolon instead of a period right and so I already have a semicolon tattoo before he died and then the last book he gave me he wrote Kate just because from your dad and so I have that in his handwriting on my arm and and there's something that speaks to me there and I just I so it's it's that kind of thing it's it's making him a part of my story but it, he's not part of the present in the same way I love that that's really beautiful thank you for sharing all of this with me it's a lot wow I really I, appreciate it you know my life is just chaos it's just it's just chaos and some of the chaos is good like I, I don't believe in regrets I, first of all, I don't believe everything happens for a reason because I don't deserve the medical 
stuff that has happened to me. There's no reason for like, I'm not inherently a bad person. I didn't whatever. And I, I like I followed all of the doctor's rules and yet I almost died in childbirth, right? So I don't believe everything happens for a reason. But I believe that when you look back in retrospect, you can find a purpose for everything in context of your life. And so like I had to almost die in childbirth in order to be sick enough to hire a nanny in order to end up connected with this one in particular, in order to be her safety net when she hit rock bottom in order to end up with this fourth kid. And everybody kind of the go-to is like, oh, you're so great for taking her in. I'm like, no, yeah, it's not that way at all. We needed her in our family. We just didn't know it. Like she brings more to us than we bring to her, you know? That's such and a beautiful so thing to say. It, it's just, so there's context for it. Like I had to get sick that way. Would I have chosen it? No. If I knew I was going to get that sick, would I have made different choices? Maybe. But that's, I think, why you don't know the future too much because if you if you become too controlled and too careful to avoid the hard stuff, you end up missing the good stuff. Yeah. And speaking of not being controlled, I want you to be able to plug your podcast because <laughs> you start every podcast with a blank sheet of paper, I do. which I find to be really interesting. So just talk a little bit about that and let's wrap up there. Okay. Yeah. My show is called Ignorance Was Bliss. <laughs> it. I used to have kind of a tagline of didn't you feel better before you knew that. The idea that once you know something, you can't unknow it. And so it started as kind of true crime adjacent. And so my earlier episodes are more crimey. And then over time, I decided to sort of just pull back the lens. I just want to talk to people and I want to talk to people off the cuff, but not chatter, not bar room chit chat. I want to ask harder questions or not, not on purpose. I'm not like grilling people, but just get to know another side of, of you so that if I have an author on, you're not going to hear, well, what made you want to write? You're going to hear about who this person is. And hopefully that compels you to listen, to buy their book or listen to their audio book or whatever. Or it tells you, yeah, no, I don't want to give this guy a dime. That's fine too. That's not up to me, you know, but, and so that's, that's what it is, is, is that I don't have talking points or an agenda. It's just conversations. It's meant to be like if you're out somewhere and you're feeling like you want connection, but you don't you don't want to just go talk to somebody, I'll do that. That's fine. I'm I'm good at talking. You come sit next to me and we'll we'll learn about this person. I love that. And you adopt podlers, people that are new in their podcasting I journey. Podlers. And uh, I I mean I just I'm I think it's the it's the best. I I in many ways podcasting certainly has changed my life and for the better. You know, I have been on disability since I broke my back, which was in 2014. And I spent a lot of time feeling irrelevant and powerless and I didn't feel smart anymore and I didn't feel competent and now I have I have a relevance and I feel smart again and I have a place in the world and I feel competent. I'm good at something again and I have words that are worth hearing and that's a big deal when you start to feel like you're fading away into nothing. So my dad tells me that all the time. He's like, you talking and having these conversations is good for you. You get better at having the conversations and we get special time together and it's helping him reflect on all of these different stories and people and subject matters it's good for you to do it. I think that stories and unique stories are something that breaks through the chatter. It breaks through the bots. It breaks through the clutter, right? Right. Mm -hmm. And that's that's a uniqueness factor. And if you can work on that and find that and polish that, it will make you a better person. You've heard from my mom. Now let's switch it over to grandpa. 
This is your interview with Kate. She certainly summed it up beautifully. She has experienced living in chaos. And what do you do if you're living in chaos? And what if you don't have that family support and you come from an adverse condition? Where do you turn to? This is why in, in this country, there's a safety net and organizations, and there's a lot of volunteer people and professional people that try to help people that are struggling with chaos in their lives. And sometimes it's really needed where you don't get it from your family. And sometimes your family even creates the havoc, as Kate has described. So where do you go? What do you do? What do you do if you're mentally breaking down or you're physically breaking down or you're having you're having a, a problem in moving forward with your life? What do you do? And what Kate is trying to tell you is that when you experience these things, it's nice to have positive support, people that are going to try to enrich your life to show that there's light at the end of the tunnel. And if you can't get it at home, you get it from your rabbi or from your church, you get it from your school that you go to, and there's counselors even at school that not only prescribe to you what courses to take or what you're interested in, but to also get a feeling of how you're adjusting to the university. So having professional support, whether it's a doctor or whether it's a social worker of some sort, is to try to help you sort out these issues. So putting it all on your back, putting it all on your own shoulders is a tough road to go. Not all of us can stand up straight at all times that we need help. And the help that you're seeking has to be genuine. It has to be caring. It has to come from the heart. Remember, it's it's easy to do what I say, but most people do what example that you set. They do what you do, not what you say. So you have to be able to climb in there. You got to be able to work hands-on with, with people. You have to show that you're real and that you care about the quest of whatever that individual is seeking. And this is what Kate is trying to do. That's helped her. And she has sorted out the chaos by understanding it and being able to help others that also fall into that category. It's almost like you have to experience negative things in your life to really understand how to make things positive because you have to get, be sick of, of falling down. To be sick of falling down, then you want to stand up and you want to keep fighting and you want to grow and you want to, you don't want to be stuck on the floor. But sometimes all of us at times need somebody to also reach out a hand and, and help you get up and hopefully be able to do the things that are necessary so that we don't fall down if we can. You know, what was very interesting in this episode is that honesty is a very sensitive topic where even if you're not getting along with me, she tells her husband, don't do anything behind my back. That's even worse. If you have other needs or you have other problems, come to me, let me know, even if it's you needed action on the side which of course I don't think she really meant that but she's yeah. uh, but she's trying to tell you that even her husband's needs are very important to her and obviously she wants to supply what his needs are but if you're having a problem and I can't meet your needs don't beat around the bush let me know what's going on so loyalty and honesty seems to be also where those key words come up you know and she wanted to give me some advice instead of asking for advice and that's what the better call daddy show is about just like her podcast is to create where you can share wisdom and share stories and be able to leave that as part of your legacy, where you're you're leaving not just
just money do you want to pass on or material things that you want to be able to capture, whether it's in a podcast or in a letter or in a diary or some work that someone does where you want to really know truly what that person was about so that that can also be passed on to children and to grandchildren and to great-grandchildren. Because again, reading about it, seeing it and experiencing that is also a very helpful guide for the future. If you didn't do this podcast, Kate and Marina, it also shows that you're able to give yourself some self-therapy. It's not only helping other people, but it gives you a chance to see the edges uh, that are so sharp with everybody else. And it smooths things out. It, it gives you the opportunity to have more patience and understanding and compassion for other people, which is not easy to do, especially when there's people that are out there so easily trying to criticize you and attack you. And all they're really doing is making themselves feel better because they have issues or problems or didn't accept certain responsibility themselves. So they project that on others. And when you do a show like this, you're able to really separate sometimes good and bad kind of can blend where if you have compassion and understanding, it makes wrongs lesser and victories not as big of a deal, you know, where you are able to go with the flow better. I agree with her. It's good to have a record or a history that you create. And uh, by doing that, then you have something to pass on. That's why a lot of people like to write books and express it that way. But seeing a live podcast and being able to go back and forth over certain sensitive issues, I think that's not only very rewarding, but it's also a, a channel of communication that is something that can be passed on very easily. And it can be done in a very relaxed manner and where people can connect by seeing it, hearing it. And that sometimes is a little bit more meaningful, I think, sometimes than even reading it. It's the therapy that both of us needed, right? That well, all of us needed. Oh, for sure. Sure, for sure. What was also from experiencing some of these heartbreaks and some of these things, experiencing near death to have a child, to experience how someone else was not able to handle or cope, not necessarily having a fully healthy child, someone that witnessed her own issues with mental health and saw it in her family and with her father and had the understanding and compassion to try to help him in every way of be able to move forward with his life. And still, even with all of that extra time and love that she gave him, that he still was wounded and hurt. A product of divorce is already hard enough, but for the person that divorces you to still blame you for ruining her own life over and over and over again and saying some very hateful things to him, it's hard to overcome that where you have to have a balance of an equal amount of support and love in order to overcome nastiness and hate. Some people weigh the negative more than the positive, and they don't even know whether to, to go on with their lives because they, they're, they're struggling to really make sense of it all and have meaning with their life and feel like, I know it sounds crazy, but they feel like they're better off with the world not having them than to be part of the world, that it's just too difficult. And there's lots of people that are committing suicide where they're not able to cope with the variables of life. And yet there's other people where they would like to live forever, yours included, where uh, even with all the ups and downs and all the tragedies and all the crazy things that have happened in my life, yet I can't get enough of it. <laughs> I want to, I'd like to live forever and keep battling whatever is thrown my way to participate in as many lives as I can in a positive way. And maybe that's what the key is, is that you have to be able to go beyond yourself and be able to join in with others and be able to feel good about other people's accomplishments and not just yourself. It's called not being selfish. 
It's called being really wanting to be something or a part of something that's even bigger than yourself. My favorite thing that she says on every one of her shows is you matter. Exactly. And she makes it sound like also that everyone around her matters, where she's not just thinking of herself. Even like I said in the beginning of this interview, even thinking about the needs of her husband, that if you can't get it at home, you're going to go outside of the marriage. One thing I will not take is being dishonest about you feelings. She wants true feelings. And uh, that's where honesty. And you know what? That builds loyalty too. When you have an honest relationship with someone, very hard to be disloyal to someone that can connect with you in an honest way and in a true way. And she tries to do that with all her relationships, even though there's barriers. And if someone's going to be harmful to the people she loves, which are her children, even if it's her own mother, she's willing to say, hey, I can't take anything that can possibly where it's toxic for her family. So she's there to protect it. The sad part about her mom is, is that she's blaming a period of time or a chain of events that occurred in her life, and she still can't get over them herself. And she's still finding every excuse to blame someone else for not taking the responsibilities of what happened herself, to blame her former husband. And then, isn't it, isn't it really quite ironic that she's separated from him for 17 years? And when he decides to end it all, that all of a sudden she's wanting to know, why didn't somebody stop all of this? All of a sudden she cares after the fact. And that's the sad part about all of us in life is that sometimes we go on with our lives and don't really take into account what can happen until after it happens. Sometimes, unfortunately, those actions can determine that it's too late and we've got to figure out a new path and move forwards with our lives. And this is what Kate does. It says she's moving forward with her life and she's trying to help others move forward with their lives. And if you can't get that nurtured support from your family, seek out professional help. Seek out people that really, truly care about you, where they can help assist you. You don't have to do it alone. I think that's uh, an important message, is that we can we can do things in life and not have to put it all on our own shoulders and make or break either way that way. Thanks for listening. Now I think I'm going to go call my dad. <laughs> I'll say goodbye and see you the next time. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy show. Join us weekly for new episodes and more daddy wisdom. Better Call Daddy is good advice always. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share. You can also find special episodes on my YouTube channel. And you can listen on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Amazon Music, Alexa, or your preferred podcatcher. That's wrap for now.